You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind. Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. broadcast across Australia from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne via those wonderful folk at the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, anarchos without rulers, about creating a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, possibly through direct democratic means, and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Exceptionally conservative concepts. Exceptionally conservative. I mean, to me, radical is giving somebody power to determine how millions and billions of us live every day. Let's move on. Privatisation nightmare. 40 years of privatisation. We were told there'd be increased competition, decreased prices, greater product uh, availability, and the list went on and on and on. And what we've seen over the last 40 years is the sell-off, giveaway, of publicly owned assets to the private sector on an ideological whim. Now, people have forgotten the public assets are relatively new. They, to a significant degree, in the parliamentary democracies, they developed as a reaction to people demanding access to safe, secure Facilities, goods and services. That's what the public sector was about. Not leaving it to the private marketplace where you can buy the best education money can buy for your little kitties. You can buy the best healthcare money can buy. And the list goes on and on. So public assets were fought for and paid for by the community as a whole. That's why they were public assets. And the returns from public assets are both, you know, clear and not so clear cut. 
For example, the privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank, which was publicly owned, opened the floodgates to the private financial market. And what that meant is that any real competition that existed in the financial sector, because one of the major financial pillars was publicly owned, went out the door. Competition disappeared. Competition does not exist in a society where essential services are controlled by a handful of corporations. It's what we call the bananisation of the economy. So privatisation, has it delivered the goods? Has the privatisation of Qantas delivered the goods? Has the privatisation of the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory delivered the goods? Has the privatisation of essential energy facilities delivered the goods? Has the privatisation of telecom delivered the goods? Has the privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank delivered the goods? And more insidiously, has the privatisation of the public service delivered the goods? 50% of the Defence Department public service is run by private contractors. If you go to a public school or public hospital, you'll find that many of the facilities which they uh, purport to uh, uh, provide are outsourced to the private sector. The NDIS is a classical example of what happens when you outsource essential services to the private sector. Price gouging. And the list goes on and on. So privatisation hasn't delivered the goods to the Australian people or anybody else on the planet. Has, has privatisation created increased competition? No. The only way you get competition in a private marketplace, which is dominated by a handful of players, is by having a publicly owned facility in that same area to provide real competition. Now, we're told that when these organisations were privatised, that the government of the day would actually establish government bodies which would regulate their behaviour. The fact is that the government bodies that were established don't have the legal framework or the uh, legislative framework to actually um, be able to regulate these authorities. And these public uh, organisations which have been established by the government of the day to keep an eye on these authorities are understaffed and under-resourced. So what has privatisation delivered? It's increased inequality. It has killed the goose that lays the golden eggs. Because most of the organisations that have been privatised were profitable. No private business is going to invest in a, organ a public organisation which is not unprofitable. So the money which was made by the Commonwealth Bank, by Telecom, by Qantas, the profits that were made, 
could be used to expand those public services or go back to the Treasury to be used for other essential services. So privatisation has not only decreased competition or almost eliminated competition in the private sector, it, all, it has also denied us any profits that were made by these public institutions. And most importantly of all, what has happened is that we've gone back to the 18th century concept of the user pays. That's right. If you've got the disposable income to uh, buy the best education for your kiddies, well and good if you haven't, well, you can rely on the Smith family to raise money to send Australian kids to public schools. How pathetic. How pathetic. So we need to look at reintroducing publicly owned services to provide public services to everybody. And we need to do this as a matter of urgency. And you can do this by actually taxing. That's right. Increasing the taxing threshold for these companies that are too big to fail. And if they fail, bad luck. The public sector will pick up the pieces. Think about it. We can't go on like this. Well, we can. But what we'll see is the gap between those who have disposable income and those who don't will increase. And that's what we've seen during the privatisation uh, tsunami. It's quite extraordinary that we, as a people, as a population, accepted that this was the truth, that public assets are bad and private assets are good. So what we've seen is an ideological campaign to remove government from regulating the private sector. Look at the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, sold off in the mid-1990s for, I think, $2.94 a share or around that price. I think shares today for the CSL, which has been privatised, are over $300. Same with the Commonwealth Bank, about $2.50. And all those people who think that their superannuation is safe in these organisations, think again, think of the global financial crisis in 2008. So it's a lose-lose situation. And what we are seeing is an acceleration of privatisation an acceleration of what I describe as undercover privatisation where people are not even aware that when they're talking to a so-called public facility, or inter not that anybody can call them these days, or interacting with a so-called public facility, that most likely they're interacting with some outsourced private organisation. And the fact is that in all these so-called private-public partnerships, it's the public that loses out. But one mistake was made. One huge mistake was made when the Commonwealth Bank was established in 1911, when the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories was established during World War I, when Telecom was established, when Qantas was established, and the list goes on and on. The ownership... That's right. The ownership 
of these public facilities was not incorporated in the Australian Constitution. That meant the government of the day, whether it's trying to fill a financial black hole or because of ideological concerns, became the owner of public assets which have been built up over decade, was not became, was the owner. And that's why they were able to sell off those public assets which provided essential public services to everyone. And that's the difference between a public facility and a private facility. A public facility is there to provide services to everyone. A private facility is there to provide services to those who can afford to pay for those services. So those of you who uh, you know, are complaining today about how difficult it is to survive, especially for those 90% of Australians who basically use the income they derive to keep a roof over their heads, well, think again. We allowed this to occur. We, as a people, accepted this ideological claptrap despite, despite knowing that this would be the end point because we thought that we would, our lives would improve by privatising public assets. Listen to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Now, just in case you're listening to this program in Melbourne town or Victoria or anywhere else in Australia, because the program is broadcast across Australia, the public interests before corporate interests was established about eight years ago for this very reason, to try to put public interests before corporate interests. And if you're interested... I suggest you go to their website, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I. That's right, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I. Trade unions, on their knees, on their knees. I mean, we've got the ridiculous situation in Victoria where the CFMEU is one and ducks is zero. I mean, here you have one of the most powerful unions that's left in this country going to the barricades because of duck shooting. Because, you see, what's happened is that basically striking is illegal in this country outside a a bargaining agreement period when you do a four-hour strike in the uh, early hours of the morning. Illegal. I mean, we talk about people not being able to withdraw their labour in China well, maybe we should look at our own legislation. Look at the legislation which has been put in place which makes an occupation a criminal offence which, for which uh, people involved can be jailed for up to 25 years. I know nobody's been jailed for 25 years, but the legislation is there in place. Look at all the legislation which has been put in place to hamstrung the ability of people to combine in order to improve their conditions. Now, I'm sure most of you, like me, were not aware of the early beginnings of the Australian trade union movement. And as far as I can ascertain, apart from a strike by convicts in 1791, 
to have their rations weekly, not daily. The first inkling on tra- about trade unionism occurred in February 1822. James Strater, a convict who worked on Hannibal MacArthur's sheep station, was charged with the heinous crime of exciting his master's servants to combine, and that's the key word, to combine, to oblige him to improve their wages and improve their rations. And on the 1st of March, 1822, he appeared before three magistrates, I think at the Glebe Court in Sydney, and because of his agitation... He was sentenced to 500 lashes of a cat and nine tail. And if he survived that, four weeks solitary confinement on bread and water. And if he survived that, he was to serve the rest of his sentence at Port Macquarie, a prison in New South Wales which was used for the more intractable convicts. So the key word in that, in the charge... Exciting his master's servants to combine to oblige him to improve their wages and improve their rations. That was the 1st of March, 1822. To me, this is the beginning of the trade union movement, and I think it's 202 years later. Why didn't I know about James Strater? I'm sure there was a few of you who may have heard of the name. So this year, I'm encouraging listeners across the country to mark the 1st of March as James Strater Day, to uh, remember the humble beginnings of the Australian trade union movements. Now, in Melbourne, we'll be holding a ceremony at midday on Friday the 1st of March at the Eight Hour Monument in the city across from Melbourne Trades Hall to mark that day. I'm encouraging people, listeners across the country, doesn't matter if you live in a little town or a big town or a region or a capital city, to mark the day. I'll have more information about uh, this particular day on websites as we go on. And what, Because, you see, Australia between 1788, when the colonisation process began, and about the 1840s, was based on three principles. One was genocide which most of us are familiar with. Two was free land. Because once the genocide occurred, there's all this free land, unencumbered land. And gentlemen of name and quality from the old Dart came across to take up thousands of acres in Victoria, which I'm familiar with, 700 squatters. Had squatted the whole of Victoria within 10 years of colonisation occurring. And then the third pillar of the society was free labour, which was provided by the uh, convicts and ticket-of-leave men and women. And though theoretically they were supposed to receive some wages, they were docked. Those wages were docked and they basically worked for rations. So you can't... You can really make a great profit when you've got free land and free labour and you've got a market in England for wool for the uh, satanic mills.
extraordinary. So over the next nine months, I'll be doing nine public presentations on the third Wednesday of each month. And I'm going to look at the composition of the convicts that were sent to Australia because we're always told they were petty criminals, they were this, they were that. But we're never told that one in 45 of the convicts, over 3,500, 160,000 convicts which were sent to Australia between 1788 and 1868, about 3,500 were political prisoners. Australia became, was Britain's Guantanamo Bay. And there were nine specific groups of political prisoners and I'll be looking at those groups. And the first group I'll be looking at is the Scottish martyrs who were sent here at the end of the 18th century. And it's on the third Wednesday of each month. You can get more information on my website, Joseph Toscano. I mean, what is it? Facebook page. And uh, other Facebook pages. But the important thing is it's important we know our history. I mean, the history of trade unionism in this country is intrinsically linked with the history of the political prisoners which were sent here from Britain, many of them involved in the establishment of trade unions in Great Britain. You're listening, to, and I've been ironical when I use the word a Great Britain. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, legalised scalping. Now, I'm sure most of you were glued to your television sets watching men and women hit balls over nets over the last few weeks in Melbourne town, all excited to see the changing of the guard. Now, you may have seen you may have seen the noise which erupted from the crowd when the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr Albanese, was introduced to the crowd during the men's final between Mr Sinner and Mr Mendeviff. I stuffed that up, didn't I? And you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's interesting. And then you notice the, the usual media response, you know. Now... I've done a little bit of research here, not that I'm that interested in the Australian Open, although a million people I'm told attended. Well, some of them attended a few times. But to get into the men's final, the minimum cost for a ticket was $800. And the thing about the Australian Open is that when you get to the big games, they have what's called legalised scalping. There's no fixed price. The price keeps increasing as the number of street, uh, seats decrease. But the minimum was $800. So I can assume that many of the people, the infamous, the celebrities, you know, there, were a bit pissed off that they weren't going to receive their full tax return. Hmm? A bit pissed off that they'd been reduced from 8000 to 4000 So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the changes in the tax system. But again, legalised scalping. Look, if you had, if you went to the men's finals, I'd, I'd be very interested in having a little chat to you. Maybe I could talk to you on one of the other programs I do, uh, Talk Back With Attitude. So ring up tomorrow. 
Yep, legalise scalping. I mean, and it seems to be something which is creeping into the entertainment industry for the celebs which turn up to uh, extract a bit of cash from Australians' pockets. That we're getting to the stage where there's no fixed price for tickets as we get closer to the event. Where, you know, you basically pay what the ticket um, company is asking and that price continues to escalate as the number of tickets decrease. Now, a little bit sad for the neo-fascist toy boys, most of them Victorians who turned up in Sydney for a knees-up Mother Brown Australia Day, Invasion Day celebration. Now, the lads had a good time in Ballarat where the uh, Victorian police basically escorted them around Ballarat showing them the sights, irrespective of the alarm they caused among the citizens of Ballarat. But when the lads turned up in Sydney on the 26th of January, hoping, hoping to have a nice video clip of the lads dressed in black and balaclavas in front of the Sydney Opera House or the Sydney Harbour Bridge, guess what? Guess what? The neo-fascist toy boys had a problem with the New South Wales police. So they missed their photo op. I mean, these people are becoming a, you know, derision. Pathetic. But not normally I agree with the uh, New South Wales Premier, but pathetic. Really pathetic. The only thing is that the New South Wales police now have all their identities. It's a tragedy. I would have loved to have seen the neo-fascist toy boys there assembling in front of the Sydney Opera House or the Sydney Harbour Bridge on Invasion Day. It is to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. so it is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, I'm interested in the Australian media like you are, and obviously the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, poor old Artie, as I said last week, is in life support, although many of the people working for Artie kind of have ignored the reality that she's on life support, obviously. You know, they don't, just don't want to face the truth. But I'm interested in how the Australian media handles news events, because it is a pattern which we see consistently over and over again, irrespective of whether it's the corporate-owned media or the government guild at ABC or large sections of of what I call asocial media. It's interesting. Now, a week ago, there was a news flash that a Russian plane with 64... Um, Ukrainian prisoners and three guards and the obviously pilot and co-pilots crashed near the Ukrainian-Russian border. And the Russian authorities said that the plane had been shot down by Ukrainian authorities. And 
it just disappeared. The news just disappeared within 24 hours. Now, obviously, if this has happened in North Korea, it would have been used for the next two years. But it just disappeared. No discussion. It just disappeared. Appeared, disappeared. Let's look at Gaza. Remember we talk about that long walk we take every week when you and I, you know, together we have a little walk after the program and we pass the bodies of all the men, women and children, mainly women and children, a metre apart. And last week the walk was, I think, uh, 25 kilometres. This week we'll be walking 26.5 kilometres at this rate. We'll get to be walking a marathon. Every metre, man, woman, child. Occasional militant, but mainly civilians. I mean, the Israeli armed forces are quite happy to kill a hundred civilians to catch one militant. We see this over and over again. Especially today when they're happy to walk into a hospital in the West Bank, not even Gaza, and gun down three people. So, a walk of 26.5 kilometres, sorry, not metres, kilometres, 26.5 kilometres, and every metre there's a body. This has occurred since the 7th of October. Every metre there's a body, mainly women and children, or old people, the occasional militant among those bodies. So what's the big news in the Australian media this week? Not the fact that another thousand Gazans have been killed in this so-called war where the uh, Israeli military hasn't even been able to contain Hamas in an area half a third the size of Melbourne. So what's the big news? The fact that maybe three or four employees of the United Nations um, in Gaza, which employs about 30,000 people to distribute aid, may have been involved in the initial attack into southern Israel by Hamas on the 7th of October. It's such a big news item that Australia temporarily halts aid to Gaza, trying to introduce starvation into the carnage, the mix. It's day after day after day after day, although hundreds of Gazans are dying every few days, mainly women and children and old people, old men, and we concentrate on that. Then... The big news item this week was that a, there was a drone attack on the border on a US military facility and three US troops were killed. Reservists were killed in this drone attack. That becomes the news of the day. That's the big news. So our gaze as a population is averted from what's happening in Gaza. It's averted from what's happening in the Ukraine. It's all about 
creating this myth that the war, the carnage started on the 7th of October. Where's the discussion about the previous 75 years? Where's the discussion about the brutality and humiliation meted out to Gazans over, a, I think, 16-year period? And the previous incursions of the Israeli army into Gaza doesn't exist. So you create this situation where there's no continuity. There's no discussion of any consequence. It's all about what happened today. You don't join the dots. Give you an example, another example, closer to home. Let's go to Australia. Now, we know that the gap between rich and poor has been escalating. We know that. Now, last week, could have been the week before, a private charity told us, the Australian people, the three richest people in this country's wealth had increased by 40% in three years. All right? While everybody else is paying increased interest rates, increased rents, increased prices for food, increased prices for basic necessities. And everybody's crying about the fact. No, but I'm just saying, everybody's crying about the fact that people earning between 180000 to 200000 are going to have their tax you know, their little tax, you know, instead of being reduced by $8,000 a year to $4,500 a year. No wonder those people of the Australian Open men's finals were pissed off. That means they had to buy, they could, next year they may only buy two tickets instead of four tickets to the Australian men's final. But that was the big story. The big story in the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC. How about the rest of the population, which will whose lives will be slightly improved by these changes. No huge discussion. It's all crocodile tears about people earning between 180000 200000 But when this happens consistently through the media, you begin to understand. It's just extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. And getting back to the 40% increase, it was a news item for 12 hours. And then it disappears from view. No analysis, no jumping up and down. And to a significant degree, this is because poor old auntie is now in a coma. She's in life support. Poor old auntie, my dearest auntie, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, on life support. And you know why she's on life support? Because when you listen or watch the Australian Broadcasting Corporation so-called news, I'm not talking about their, you know, their entertainment, but news, guess where all the commentators come from? The private sector. All the commentators are the private sector. If it's finance, the ANZ Bank, the Commonwealth Bank, this bank, that bank, as if they don't actually, as if they're going to provide an analysis that fits the picture, 
What's happened to the public intellectual? Well, the public intellectual has been muzzled because universities now refuse to allow their staff, in the majority of cases, to be interviewed. No wonder we're seeing the type of garbage which continues to grow in so-called social media or asocial media. No public intellectuals, no alternative viewpoints, just experts from the private sector. When you see the reporters and commentators from News Limited given open access to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, you begin to understand how the Australian media works and how we reinforce how the current status quo is reinforced hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year. No alternative viewpoints. None. None. And when we get somebody who's appointed for a few days in Sydney to take over a you know, a radio program, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, three days later, you know, the carpet pulled out from under her. I think I've given you this example before. I'll give you this example again because it highlights how the Australian media works, including the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Now, in 1999, I had a gig on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. There was an overnight program. I was a guest. I gave an anarchist radical analysis of the news of the of the week, okay? Uh, I'd been invited by the host who she had been uh, hosting this Australia-wide program for over a decade. It was a bit of, bit of a laugh, but also quite serious. And poor old Johnny Howard and his team were a little bit upset because, you know, this was during core and non-core promise days, you know. They didn't break promises in those days. They had core promises and non-core promises, you know, different, you know, different way. And this went on for a few months. I think I was scoring a few points. And eventually the, uh, from, you know, the ABC bureaucracy said, well, we need a bit of balance on this program. So a, uh, a National Party senator who lived in Melbourne in the CBD, Julian McGorran, was trundled off to the ABC once a week and we crossed swords. We did that for about th- two or three months. And I, look, being a megalomaniac, I thought I got the best of poor old Julian. And um, guess what? The program was axed. The presenter, who'd been doing the program for a decade, was relegated to the back rooms for 20 years. They couldn't get rid of her because she was on a permanent contract. They have short-term contracts these days. Bang. That's the way it works when there are alternative views, broadcasts which don't fit the current narrative. If it doesn't fit the current narrative, it doesn't appear. And that's why community radio is so important. Although most community radio these days is, uh, you know, devoted to specific issues and music and all that type of stuff. But the fact is, you don't listen. You listen to the Anarchist World this week for a, a different analysis. That's what you listen to for. But although I've been broadcasting the Anarchist World this week, initially as Encounters with the Third Alternative and now as the Anarchist World this week, 
for the last, what, 25 years. I've been broadcasting for over 45 years here on Community Radio 3CR and about 20 years via the Community Radio Network. Do you think I ever get an invitation, have a chat on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation regarding the uh, current economic situation or the corporate-owned media? Of course not. And that's how it works. There are ideas which are considered to be acceptable because they support the status quo. And there are ideas which are said to be beyond the pale because they're looking at radical alternatives. Things like a universal basic income. I mean, why should people do boring, repetitive work for almost nothing when we're rich enough as a society to have a universal basic income so people have a choice of whether they get involved in work or not, especially of increased mechanisation and artificial intelligence where human beings are no longer going to be required in the numbers they're required today. I mean, the ancient Romans sorted out the problem. They provided a universal basic income for the plebeians, the Roman citizens, not the slaves, but the Roman citizens, to keep them quiet. 280 days were gazetted as holidays. So people go to the Colosseum and, you know, amuse themselves with their blood sports. Not that I'm suggesting we do that now. But this is it. There is no room for ideas which do not fit in their little box. Private investment for private profit. The West is good, the rest of the world is bad. We are the only people that have human rights. We are so wonderful. That's, that's, the, that's the play. We're all Australians. Come on, come on. Let's move on. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. As I said before, the Gazan carnage, you can't call it a war when one side has planes, missiles, tanks and all these wonderful toys and the other side is contained in an area about the third of Melbourne where over 26,500 people have died, most of them women and children and old men. Very few militants. Even the Israeli army will say after three months of this, or now almost four months, that they may have neutralised 30% of Hamas's military capability. So the carnage continues. So think about it. As I said before, we need to visualise these things because it's all very well to look at numbers, but we become desensitised, dehumanised. We forget these are... Ordinary people, flesh and blood, somebody's wife, somebody's brother, somebody's child. You know, one metre apart, line them up, one metre apart, and you'll be walking for 26.5 kilometres. Then you begin to understand. For every Israeli that died in the Hamas attack, that was killed in the Hamas attack. 
20 Palestinians have now died. Think about it. All right, let's move on. Now, we all know about political authoritarianism, so we can't bandy the word communist or anarchist anymore because there are no communists... Well, no, there are no real communist societies. We've got North Korea, which is a hereditary monarchy. Then we've got China, which is, you know, ceased to be communist years ago. So the big word today is authoritarianism. There are authoritarian societies. China, North Korea, Russia, okay? They're authoritarian, political authoritarianism. Now, I'm thinking about this because, as I keep saying at the beginning of the program, anarchism is about devolving power, sharing power and holding wealth in common. So what's the big, the big thing? The big thing in society, it's inequalities in power and wealth. Now, there may be political authoritarianism, but there is a new concept which I'd like to put forward. You may laugh at it. I don't really care. But economic authoritarianism. Economic authoritarianism. That occurs when duopolies, monopolies, a small group of people or companies dominate economic activity in a specific geographical region. And that's what we have in Australia. We may not have political authoritarianism to the extent they have in Russia or China or North Korea, but we do have an extreme case of economic authoritarianism where most of the major facilities in this country are owned by a handful of corporations. I mean, all you've got to do is do your big Australian caravan trip, be a grey nomad. And as you stop from regional town to regional town to capital city, you go into the shopping mall, you know, the church, the mosque of Australia, the shopping mall, and guess what? It's the same names over and over and over and over again. Bunnings, Woolworths, McDonald's, Hungry Jacks, Coles, and the list goes on and on. That's what economic authoritarian is about. 90%. 90% of Australian small businesses fail within five years. As I said last week, it's all very well going to Europe and walking down those streets and seeing all those small businesses that have been there for five or six generations. But they're there because they're protected by their governments, which don't allow shopping complexes to be built within so many kilometres of these strip shopping centres. That's the problem. Economic authoritarianism, political authoritarianism, two sides of the same coin, inequalities, power and wealth. I'll say it again, inequalities of power and wealth. In Australia, this is highlighted by the fact that about 9% of this country's people, and again, I don't, I don't accept traditional class analysis anymore, it's a load of hog shit, right? I see there are 
four classes in Australia, and I assume it's the same in the rest of the so-called developed Western world. The first one is the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. That small group whose uh, profits have increased by 40% over the last three... I mean, no, wealth, not profits, wealth has increased by 40% over the last uh, three years, okay? The 1% is. And it's all very well to talk about the 1% is and jump up and down and call them the devil. Forget about that. Then we have the 8% who have disposable income at the end of the day. What disposable income means is once you've paid your bills, your mortgage, your rent, your other commitments, once you've done that, you've got disposable income. And the great thing about living in Australia with disposable income, the fact is that the richer you are, the less tax you pay. But more importantly... You can actually invest your money in the housing market and get a tax deduction through negative gearing. You can get invest your market money, disposable income in the share market, you know, and get your tax deduction. You know, and the list goes on and on. Because the beauty is that the fact is that all types of people find themselves in this eight percent. Traditionally, we divided people in terms of the work they did. Doctors were rich, plumbers were poor. Okay? Well, it's changed. Life has changed. There are many people involved in trades that find themselves with disposable income. And they invest that money. Obviously you would. And there are many people involved in professions who find it difficult meeting their day-to-day commitments. Bingo. So you just can't use traditional class analysis anymore, you know, working class, ruling class, lump of proletariat and all that stuff. 1% disposable income. Then you've got the great bulk of people, about 60%. You know, they go to work, pay their taxes, pay their rent, pay their mortgage, send their kids to school, obey the law. You know, the usual losers, people like you and me, you know. And at the end of the week, you may have enough saved to have a holiday, if you're lucky, at the end of the year. And then there's the 30% of Australians who basically live around and below the poverty line who rely on social security benefits to survive. You know, people are paying 40, 50, 60% of their income. Extraordinary. Just extraordinary. And then we got the so-called housing crisis. You know, we say we've got a housing crisis. And again, the same concept, no competition. The housing sector has been left to the private investment for private profit mob. It's all about no public housing, no growth in public housing. Victoria is the worst state in Australia with 2.8% of people living in public housing and many of them being moved out forcefully in order to redevelop these estates so you get a 90% private mix and a 10% community mix, which has got nothing to do with public housing. And we say, how come? How come? There's no competition. If you've got a strong public housing sector, you can compete with the private sector. You can drive rents down. You can drive real estate prices down at the lower end of the market. And this is what happens. 
in a society which is fixated with a private investment for private profit ideology. Fixated. Extraordinary. Now, just in case you are interested in public housing, there may be one or two of you out there. The public housing, everybody's business uh, vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House will return Thursday, the 1st of February. That's tomorrow, Thursday, the 1st of February, midday to 1pm, and then we'll adjourn down the road for a, a late lunch. But the key is, it's all about this com- competitive forces If you leave everything to the private sector, there is no competition, there is collusion, and the fewer, fewer um, entities which provide a service, the greater the collusion. The only way to force competition in a capitalist society is through the establishment of public infrastructure, public services, and the privatisation, I said at the beginning of the program, of these public services have been a total disaster. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Now, I've got a few Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, a few web pages, anarchistmedia.org, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, a few YouTube channels, Public Interest Before... Oh, I'm getting bored. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, josephtoscano.nam, the list goes on and on. But ultimately... You've got a choice. You can scream at the radio and get a heart attack or a stroke. You can just say, that's the way it is. You can't fight City Hall. Or you can do something. There are many organisations around this country with their environmental focused, economically focused, radically focused, whatever, that are actually doing something. You can get click activism and get RSI of your forefinger. It's a very, very serious problem. Or you can actually take to the streets. Ultimately, the decision is yours. You can continue to be a life member of the somebody should do something about that club, a big club in Australia, or a life member, I'm, I'm going to do this, and I'm the Gunner Cub Club, or you can actually tear up your membership cards, go out in the sunshine and get involved with different people. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast, in case you missed it, by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. And if you do listen to Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, you can actually listen to it on Friday morning, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Who knows? Bye-bye. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.